Produced by PI Media. From Tova Berger, an Auschwitz survivor, quote, They told us to get undressed and they shaved us. They shaved my beautiful blonde hair and my two sisters' hair and we were standing naked before the soldiers and for me it was a shock because I was a religious girl. I was never undressed in front of a man and they made all kinds of dirty jokes about our bodies and they looked at us while I was standing there shivering, naked, without hair on my body and I was exposed. I felt like an animal. And the way they treated us already, it was so terrible. Then I said, where is God? Where is God? Hi, I'm Nate Nelson. Welcome to On the Holocaust from Yad Vashem. The Auschwitz concentration camp was an absolutely horrific place where terrible acts were committed against innocent Jews. But the experience was not the same for everybody. Children and the elderly were immediately sent to the gas chambers. Men of able body were put to hard labor, toiling day and night. For the women who weren't immediately killed upon arrival, life in Auschwitz was uniquely punishing. For those like Tova, for example, shaved and stripped for the entertainment of Nazi guards. This is especially true for mothers. In today's episode, Dr. Naama Sheikh, researcher and director of the e-learning department at Yad Vashem, speaks about the particular experience shared by women held in Auschwitz. Dr. Sheik, hello. We're all familiar, at least to some extent, with the atrocities that occurred at Auschwitz. But can you talk about how the camp was experienced differently by men and by women? One of the main differences was uh, uh, during the selection. Men, women and children who arrived to the camp, they came from ghettos from other places like Western Europe and other parts of Europe. They arrived after a very short imprisonment in, in transit camp. And while arriving to the camp, they were immediately uh, uh, separated by the Germans. So we have these two columns. One of them is men and uh, um, young men until the age of 16. And the other column contain uh, uh, women and, and children. More women and children were murdered in Auschwitz than men. And... I can say that the answer to the question, why is it embedded actually in Nazi ideology? Because children under the age of 16 were sent immediately to the gas chambers. And when men and women above the age usually of 45 were not considerably, were not considered fit to work and they were sent also to the gas chambers. Why women and children were more, murdered more than men uh, in Auschwitz? Children were perceived to be, of course, by the Nazis as the next Jewish generation, so they were not allowed uh, uh, to live. And women, between mainly between the ages of 20 to 40, were considered to be the next Jewish generation. So, of course, they can, if in the German perspective, God forbid, they will survive, they will be able to bring more Jewish children to the world. And, and also embedded in Nazi ideology is, is a form of sexism which sees in women, I would say, less of a work power. They were considered to be less good, less effective work power. Because of this, we can see that more women are being sent to uh, uh, the gas chambers. What we can also see is that since the mids of 1943, the Germans are doing kind of, I would say, 
even though it sounds horrible and it is horrible, kind of, I would say, ideological discount for them. And, and because they were losing in, in the front, mainly in the Eastern Front, and they needed more work power, they actually did uh, this kind of ideological change. And they entered, they decided that they need more work power and more women would enter to the camp as prisoners in order to be uh, served, I can say, as as um, work power. But the thing was, at, that, at this stage, that uh, um, mothers were... Uh, um, s- <laughs> First, the, the, these mothers, the young mothers between the age of 20 to 40 were sent immediately with their children most of the time to the gas chambers. In many cases, they were forcibly uh, um, separated from their children. And here we are having for women, actually, I can say when you're talking about the camps, kind of the first time where they encountered this, what is called choiceless choices. This is a term that was coined, I can say, by an American scholar, Loris Langer, exactly when he was talking about these uh, dilemmas in, in the Holocaust, and he termed them choiceless choices. And when talking about it, these women, they were not exactly got the choice to stay with their children or not to stay with their children. In many cases, their children were turned away from them um, forcibly, in other cases, they, they, they will keep on uh, hearing from the Germans and from prisoners who were standing on the ramp, give the children to the old people. We have it in so many testimonies, in so many memoirs, these ongoing horrible sentences, give the children to the old people. And the Germans in many ways were a very, I can say, good psychologist and they were forced to say to the new arrivals, you arrive to, to a work camp in the East, you will see your children later, you will meet your husbands and brothers later. If they would have said uh, uh, the truth, which actually the truth was at that stage that in two hours, most the majority of your family and most of the transport which just arrived will be gone, will be dead, will be murdered. They would, these prisoners, if they would say the truth, taken by the German immediately and, and shot quietly uh, behind the train which just arrived. But many of them tried to save the life of the mothers. In many times, they were actually approaching the mothers and telling them in different languages, give the children to the old people or give the children to your mother. This is... In many perspectives, this is a survival strategy because what they were actually doing, they knew, of course, the Jewish children will not live in Auschwitz. They also knew that these young women have a chance to enter the camp as prisoners and maybe a chance uh, uh, um, to survive. They're trying to help them by risking their life. And in most of the cases... Jewish mothers, even they didn't know, of course, that they are in an extermination camp and that the separation from the children means that they are being sent, uh, um, that the children are being sent to murder and they are being entered the camp. They will enter the camp as prisoners. But most of these mothers did not 
left their children and if they had a choice, they went with uh, um, their children. In many cases, they didn't have a choice. In, in one of the cases, for example, Esther Goldstein, she arrives to Auschwitz from Karpato-Rutenia. From our perspective, it's Hungary at that time, and this is June 1944. And she arrives uh, with her three sisters, and they are arriving to, they're, they're arriving to Auschwitz, and of course the men and the women are being separated And they are standing in column in front of the German doctor, SS doctor, who is performing the selection. It's always a German doctor out of the perception that a doctor, an MD doctor, will be able to, to decide, I would say, in a second, who is fit for work and who doesn't fit for work. And Esther and his sister uh, um, are standing there. And Piri, one of her sisters, she has two children. One of them is Dina. She she's a baby. She's a 13-month-old baby, and she's holding her in her arms. And her other, her second child, her oldest child, his name is Ellie, and he's five, and he's actually holding her skirt in a way, in the way children are holding, I would say, their mother's skirts, especially when they are afraid. It's something that we don't talk often about. When we talk about the Holocaust, about the fear, but it was it was really, really frightening, especially if you're th- thinking about his young children and and the SS doctor is asking Piri if the older woman who's standing be- behind her uh, is her mother, and she's saying, "Yes, she is my mother." And he's saying to her, "Give your children to your mother." And she's saying, "No, they are mine. I mean, I'm not going to give them." To anyone and and they begin to argue, and you know many times we are talking about heroism, we think about the heroic of course uprising of Varsha ghetto, and we think about our, about weapon and about parties, and we don't always think about what I can call daily life heroism and and heroism which is performed by I can say you know regular people just just people and She is standing there and she is arguing with this SS doctor, which, which is something, of course, never heard of. And she is standing in the midst of Birkenau at that stage, surrounded by Germans, by, with their dogs, with their weapons. And she is arguing with him. And he is calling to one of the prisoners who is standing there. And he is calling this prisoner and he tell, telling him... And he thinks maybe in Yiddish, maybe she will understand better. And he sa- he, he's ordering the prisoner to approach Piri and to tell her to give the children to her mom. And this is what the prisoner is doing and is also adding in Yiddish, which he hopes that the German doesn't fully understand. And he adds there, if you want to live, give your children to your, to your mother. And she's saying to him too, These are my children. I'm not going to give them to anyone. And eventually what happened is that the, the German doctor, is, he's getting very furious and he is like forcibly separating between, between Piri and her children. And the four sisters are entering the camp. The children are, of course, being taken to the gas chamber the same day and, and being murdered there. What happens to the mother after that? What is there? Esther is 
telling in her testimony after the Holocaust that the three sisters was keep on struggling in the camp, trying to keep Piri alive because after she lost her children, she didn't want to leave anymore and she was keep on trying to commit suicide by running to electric fence in the camp in Auschwitz-Birkenau. Eventually, the four of them survived. But of course, when we are talking about this, what we can call this, this reverse world, okay, when, when, when a woman... When a mother kind of have to choose between her life and her children's life, and she is forced to be separated from her children, and, and she is losing her two children, this is this is something which, of course, nobody can uh, can forget this trauma. And and the question is, of course, how do you live after that uh, um, with this trauma? And in addition to the psychological torture, there was also immense physical toil for the Auschwitz prisoners. In what ways were the physical conditions of Auschwitz experienced differently by men and women? We can think immediately, and this is logically, of course, about the monthly period and uh, uh, about pregnancies. And also, I would say, about uh, forms of, of abuse, other abuses uh, um, that women suffered from them more uh, than men. If I'm talking about the monthly period, as I was saying, most of the women who entered the camp as prisoners were between the ages of 16 uh, to 40, and most of them, of course, still have their period. Almost all of them lost it. It says it stopped usually two or three weeks after entering the camp, mainly because the combination of of the shock and of the malnutrition that uh, uh, was in the camp. And we can see, I would say, a dual uh, um, approach to it. The, the women are keep on talking about it among themselves. And we have a few interesting, interesting and touching things that mainly they are happy, kind of happy that they don't have their period anymore because there are no hygienic condition in the camp. There is there's a woman, as they're saying, keep on saying, can't take care of her own hygiene. And so in a way, it's a relief. Also, the fact that the Germans sometimes, when they were actually unlucky women, whom their monthly period did not stop and some of them, the Germans, were actually beat them to death uh, uh, just because they were what they call in German verfluchte Jude. It was like a, a filthy Jew, okay? And and they were beating them to death. So we can see that in in most of the cases they are saying, okay, it's good that we don't have a period because we, we can't take care of it. But from the other perspective, again, they are keep on talking among themselves about. This fear, this huge fear that if they will survive, maybe because they don't have their period for such a long time and maybe they will not be able to have children after the Holocaust if they will survive. And this is, this is a huge fear. There are also interesting things about, about this losing the period because many survivors were thinking that the Germans enter 
put actually a brom, bromide or other, or other chemicals inter, into their food in order to stop their administration and an order that if they will survive, they will not be able to have a, a children anymore. This is, this is not right. I mean, it, it's not correct. The German didn't have to put anything in their food. Their administration stopped. But this is thing that female survivors and prisoners at that time were keep on thinking that the Germans are, are doing it. How did the faith of the mother affect their fate upon arrival at the camp? Jewish pregnant women who arrived to the camp and were sent immediately upon arrival in the selection to the gas chambers. Unlike non-Jewish women, they were, in Auschwitz there were also non-prison, non-Jewish women prisoners. There were po- Polish women, political prisoners. There were Sinti and Roma, gypsy women. And there were a, a German political women who were imprisoned in the camp. These non-Jewish women who were pregnant until 1943, they were murdered uh, um, like Jewish women. After 1943, they were not murdered. And after a few months, they were also allowed... Also, they were not not only allowed to give birth, but also their babies were not uh, uh, murdered immediately. In most cases, uh, um, these children did not uh, uh, survive. Going back to Jewish women, and because Nazi ideology, of course, uh, Jewish women were, for the entire period of the camp existence, were murdered if they were pregnant immediately upon arrival. We do know about a few hundred Jewish women, and probably they were more, but we guess that most of them, that these more women did not survive or they didn't give testimony after the Holocaust. But we know about a f- about hundreds of women, Jewish women, who managed to enter the camp even though they were pregnant. And, and the question, of course, is how? The answer is kind of simple, kind of simple, okay, because all of them were in the very early stages of their pregnancy and you couldn't see the pregnancy. But then the question is, so how come they didn't say that they were pregnant? Because many times the German ask, are there any pregnant women among you? The answer will be that some of them didn't know they were pregnant. The pregnancy was in its very early stages. Others knew that they were pregnant, even it was very early stage but of the pregnancy, but they knew that they were pregnant, but I think that kind of out of intuition, or maybe they thought that even if this is a work camp and not an extermination camp, we, we talked about this deception process, they still thought that it wouldn't be the brightest idea to, to declare that they were pregnant. Of course, that eventually the pregnancy was uh, uh, discovered by uh, by the Germans, and and the fate of a Jewish pregnant of pregnant Jewish women in the camp was actually it was a, a bad or worse. It's bad would be she was sent uh, uh, um, she was murdered, or in the gas chambers, or in other ways, usually very cruel. The worst situation was that when these women gave birth and the German 
knew or discovered the fact they gave birth, in many cases, um, they were actually also torturing the newborn and the mother in, in different ways. Either it will be what they termed as medical experiments or other abuses. In order to prevent, I think, a, a this suffer, suffering, and in order to try and save at least the mothers, again, we are talking about what was termed, as I was saying, choiceless choices. It's not a choice between good and good, okay? It's a choice many times between bad and worst. And in order to save at least the mothers, we have a phenomenon of Jewish doctors and Jewish midwives. And it's important to note here, they were prisoners as every other female prisoner in the camp. They were not what we can say privileged prisoners. Um, they, were, they were just prisoners in the camp who risked their life in order to save these mothers. Can you give me an example of how this occurred? I'm thinking specifically about the story of Ruth Elias. Could you share with our listeners who she was? She was a Jewish woman. She was born in Ostrova, Czechoslovakia. She was sent with her family to Theresienstadt Ghetto. And from Theresienstadt Ghetto at 1943, at the end of 1943, she was sent to Auschwitz. She, she was... 21, almost 22, and she got married in, in Theresienstadt ghetto and she arrived to Auschwitz pregnant. She was in a very early stage and, and she was a prisoner in Auschwitz and she couldn't find, I can send anyone who would perform an abortion on her and, and eventually she gave birth uh, uh, to, a baby, to a baby girl in one of the blocks in Birkenau and Mengele was one of the SS doctors who were performing what was called a, a medical experiment. He performed them on twins, on people who had a, one green eye and one blue eye, and also on, on, on pregnant women. And he decided to do this kind of horrible, of course, medical experience, which had nothing with medicine and experiments, of course, and... He kind of decided how long a Jewish a Jewish baby will will survive with with no eating, and he did it. And of course, the baby uh, uh, um, the baby suffers horribly, and and Ruth, her mom, suffers horribly. And eventually, um, a medical doctor, a Jewish medical doctor, who was a prisoner in the camp, to. She heard about 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 the suffering, and she managed to obtain by risking her life a, a morphium injection, and and she came to root and and to root block again by risking her life. We are not often asking the question, I would say, about goodness. You know, when we when we talk about the Holocaust and think about the Holocaust, we often. Of course, asking the question about about bed and about the question, how is it humanly possible? We don't often ask the question, not that I have the answer, about good acts and about people who are risking their life for for other people, for strangers. 
And this Dr. Matza Steinberg is, is, is managing, she's a prisoner. She's managing to obtain this morphine injection. And secretly she's coming to Ruth and, and she's talking to her. And Ruth is describing and she's saying, she talks, she talks to me with an angel voice and, and, and she, she told me that, that I have, I have to survive. I have to live. My baby will not live. That, that was, that was the reality of Auschwitz and, and that I have, I have to redeem. She was using the phrase, the baby from her suffering. And Ruth is saying that she said, to, to, to the doctor, to this Jewish prisoner doctor, she told her, but I, what do you want me to do? She said, do you want me to kill my baby? And, and the doctor, doctor was saying, I took the, Hippoc- the Hippocrates oath. I can't kill. I have to save. I'm a medical doctor and I have, to, at least I have to save you. Cause if, if the baby will keep on suffering and, and Mengele will keep on doing it until you, and your baby will die. She speaks to Ruth for hours, and eventually Ruth is injecting this morphium to her baby, redeeming her from her suffering. There isn't any other expression for it. Dr. Sheik, these are honestly some of the most disheartening stories I've ever heard in my life. What becomes of a human being after going through such experiences? These are experiences, of course, that nobody can, can forget or, or put behind you. You are keep on living, I would say, after it. Ruth, Ruth kept on living. She, she, she survived the Holocaust. She immigrated to Israel and, and she brought, uh, uh, she, she remarried and she have uh, uh, two sons. And, you know, she kind of, what we can say, of course, return to life but we can't forget and she of course did not forget and also the doctors who were doing what they were doing in Auschwitz did never uh, uh, forget there was a very interesting research which was done about it was kind of uh, um, the, uh, the researchers psychologists were checking nightmares they were comparing between male nightmares, camp survivor, and female nightmares, female who survived uh, at the camp. And, and these gender differences came along. It was, it was amazing. You can see that men were camp survivors, were keep on talking about uh, uh, this ongoing nightmare or repeating nightmare, which was around, I can say, uh, uh, starvation. It was around hunger. They were keep on describing, like Primo Levi described it so beautifully, I would say, in his amazing book, If This Is a Man, he was talking about this nightmare that you have, uh, you are very, very hungry, you're starving, and you have in front of you a, um, a table which is full with food, and you like he and other prisoners are kind of approaching this table in order to have this food. And something is always happening before they are eating. Someone is coming and taking the food. The table is collapsing. They are awaking, uh, awake or something happens. So they never get to eat. It's a very specific, horrible nightmare. Most of the men, when talking about their nightmares, will talk or recalled starvation women will again generally speaking 
will 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 dream and their nightmares will be about the horrible the horrible hygienic condition about the fact that you can't take care of your own body your own a uh, uh, hygienic condition and that you are feeling very i would say a uh, um, stranger to yourself and disgust by by yourself so so this is for example a gender differences the most striking and and beautiful thing to see is that most of the women as the men it goes to to the men are rebuilding their life they are choosing to live after the holocaust and there is and there is a choice here we were talking about choices choices during the holocaust and and we can see after the holocaust the choice to live the choice to live a life which are not i would say kind of instrumental life like i'm waking up in the morning i'm going i'm going to work i'm just living the life because i'm living okay because i'm an organ no there is a choice of life the choice to to relove to retrust to regain the trust in 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 human beings and in humanities the choice the choice to be happy the choice to trust the choice to regain i would say your innocence in the way you perceive the world that that was done by holocaust survivor that it took a lot of courage a lot of effort but it was done and 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 it's beautiful because we can say that most of holocaust survivors are rebuilding their life in a positive beautiful i would say a, a, a loving way Thank you, Dr. Sheik, for describing some of what it was like to be a woman in the Auschwitz concentration camps. This has been On the Holocaust, a podcast from Yad Vashem. Thank you for listening. Mm-hmm.